Welcome to today's conversation in our After the Curve, the Changing Face of Healthcare podcast series. Today's focus is health policy. We're excited to bring you perspectives from our consulting organization, McDermott Plus, which provides health policy and advocacy services. Together, we'll cover how the pandemic has changed the conversation leading up to the November presidential election and how key policy issues may and will evolve in the months and years to come. I'm Leslie Tulio, Chief Marketing Officer at McDermott. Joining me today are Eric Zimmerman, Mara McDermott, and Jessica Rock. Eric is a partner and chair of the healthcare practice at McDermott Will & Emery. He's also a principal at McDermott Plus Consulting. Mara is a vice president at McDermott Plus Consulting, and Jessica is a senior director. Eric, Mara, Jessica, thanks for joining. This is obviously a huge topic, and there's lots of room for us to cover issues. But let's start in the obvious place, which is that the pandemic has forced major changes in how healthcare is being delivered. So I'd love to get your thoughts on what some of those changes are and which of them are most likely to endure. Mara, I'm hoping you can kick us off by talking a little bit about how you're viewing the landscape right now and which issues are most critical to tackle. Sure. Thanks. And thanks so much for having us. We're excited to join the podcast today and to bring you some of our insights from the McDermott Plus Consulting world. You're absolutely right. We've seen very dramatic shifts in the way that healthcare services are being delivered and paid for as a result of the pandemic. And in some cases, those shifts have brought about you know, evolution and revolution in the delivery of care that would have otherwise taken decades. And my colleague Jessica is going to talk a little bit about that. And in other cases, the COVID-19 pandemic has really set us back. And I think we will spend many years as healthcare providers and consultants recovering from the damage that has been done by the pandemic. We're going to hit on three areas today. I think we could spend hours as a group talking about the various ways that the pandemic has impacted the landscape in Washington, D.C. and the landscape for healthcare providers. I'm going to kick it off by talking about one of my favorite topics, value-based care. And what we've really seen with this pandemic in the value-based care space is the vulnerability and weakness of a fee-for-service payment system. So, you know, sort of two different dynamics here where providers are paid for the number of clicks, the number of procedures that they provide. We saw a dramatic drop-off in those types of visits, all electives shut down in some states for long periods of time, people scared to go into doctor's offices for primary care and other routine care visits, having a corresponding effect for physician practices and you know, sort of others that are paid on a fee-for-service basis in drying up their revenue. You know, nobody's coming in, so they're not getting paid. The second thing that we saw were, you know, sort of tremendous and overwhelming volumes in certain areas of the country that also placed strains on the systems and and healthcare entities that had to really respond to those types of challenges. So that's, you know, sort of all the bad news about a fee-for-service payment system. The bright spot, and I think, you know, where we see a lot of the policy moving is towards systems that don't pay in a fee-for-service way. So looking at capitated payments where they're paying you for your population and seeing that there are medical groups that are currently paid that way that fared through this storm of COVID a lot better than some of their fee-for-service counterparts. This is a policy direction that both the Obama administration and the Trump administration had been pushing toward already, trying to get healthcare providers and in particular physician practices off of the treadmill of fee-for-service and into more sustainable long-term financial models. 
which also, by the way, can control cost (laughs) and has been a major driver across the policy conversation. And what we are seeing with many providers, not all, is a doubling down on that vision to move towards different types of payment models that don't rely so heavily on fee-for-service and instead deploy alternative payment models that pay you for your population, for keeping them healthy, for keeping them out of the hospital. So I think we're going to continue to see that trend continue. And that is integrally linked with a topic that Jessica and I spent a lot of time working on, which is telehealth. So I'm going to kick it over to her to let her, you know, sort of guide us through some of the changes we've seen in the telehealth reimbursement landscape. Thanks, Mara. You kicked off your description of the impact on value-based care and sort of highlighting the weaknesses of fee-for-service model by also talking about how this pandemic has sort of moved us or catapulted us forward in certain regards. And that's very true with respect to telehealth. So prior to this current public health emergency, there was very limited coverage or opportunity to utilize telehealth under the Medicare fee-for-service program. And with the environment that Mara described, where patients were not able to have elective procedures and reluctant to go see their physician face-to-face, there became a tremendous need to increase telehealth services to the Medicare population. And so CMS and Congress and the administration responded accordingly and really broadened. We saw a huge expansion of what was allowed under Medicare fee-for-service with respect to telehealth services. So prior to the public health emergencies, there were limitations on where the beneficiary could be when receiving a telehealth service. And that's not only with respect to where they were physically located in terms of their home or a physician office, but also where they were geographically. And so CMS waived all of those requirements. So Beneficiaries had previously had to be in rural areas. No longer did they need to be in a rural area. So telehealth was available to all Medicare beneficiaries. They also weren't allowed to be in their home receiving a telehealth visit. So they needed to be essentially in a healthcare provider's office receiving telehealth care from another provider who was at a different or distant site. And so they waived that requirement, allowing Medicare beneficiaries to connect and receive telehealth services at their home. So those were two of the large and sort of major policy changes that we saw that really increased the scope and the availability of telehealth care to Medicare beneficiaries. I also want to sort of wrap this into what Mara was saying with respect to highlighting the weaknesses of fee-for-service. So as now we're starting to think about how do we transition out of a public health emergency, what's become clear is the agency is grappling with how do we preserve some of the benefits of these changes while making sure that we don't increase incentives, again, to sort of over-deliver services, right? So in a fee-for-service model, if you're being reimbursed on the number of visits that you have with beneficiaries and you now are facilitating or making it easier to deliver care by covering more telehealth services, how do you balance those two elements? So how do you balance improving availability and access to care for Medicare beneficiaries while making sure that you're preserving the Medicare program for years to come. And so what we see now in the Medicare physician fee schedule is CMS, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, really trying to balance those two things, access to care for beneficiaries, as well as program integrity or preserving the Medicare program for the long haul. 
Leslie, if I could, let me feed off of the points that Mara and Jessica were making. I think one of the byproducts of the move toward value-based care, as well as this transformation in how care is delivered through telehealth and other new flexibilities, it's going to create a push-pull tension in terms of interest in moving in one policy direction and addressing the consequences in another. And the byproduct of that, I think, is going to be a growing concern. Well, let me actually put it this way. A growing dynamic of consolidation in the healthcare marketplace, which is already very much a trend right now, accelerated by the Affordable Care Act, but one that is going to be hastened even further because of the environment that we're in. You have many providers, vulnerable providers, that are going to be looking for partners and needing cash infusions and probably therefore going to be turning to larger systems for that kind of relief, as well as you have larger systems that are going to be seeing marketplace opportunities. You see this happening in many aspects of the economy and healthcare is no exception. Likewise, as we move more toward value-based care, there's increased interest in vertical integration. And so you have alignments between hospitals and physicians and hospitals and payers that is necessary to set up the infrastructure in order to succeed in a value-based care environment. So at the same time that the marketplace is consolidating to meet the demands of the new environment, you have policymakers already very concerned about the consequences of consolidation, particularly on costs to the healthcare system. You had mostly in 2019, a lot of focus, a lot of scrutiny of vertical and horizontal integration. A number of committees in the House and Senate started a series of hearings looking at different impacts of consolidation. They prompted a number of inquiries from the Federal Trade Commission and Department of Justice, as well as the IRS. And that was just the leading edge of demonstration of concern around consolidation. In later 2019, early 2020, before the pandemic, you started to see that concern pivot into scrutiny of the role of private equity in healthcare. And even though it was a slight shift in focus, it's coming from the same place of concern. And that is an imbalance in power in healthcare and what that might do to costs. Then at the same time, uh, the other consequence that is going to be a driver here is what this is going to mean for federal budgets. We are investing uh, literally trillions in healthcare right now to shore up the healthcare system and to respond to the pandemic. And at the same time, adding trillions to the federal debt, that commitment to supporting the economy and getting us past this crisis are there and they're going to be there for a while, but that day of reckoning is going to come. And it's also going to drive more deficit reduction legislation, probably not in 2021, but not long after that. And that almost invariably leads to revenue pressure for healthcare services. So federal budgets and federal deficits is a really salient reminder that we've been talking a lot about a public health emergency, but we also can't lose sight of the fact that it's an election year. And so each of the presidential candidates have put forward priority health policy objectives. I'm curious, in the context of value-based care, telehealth, consolidation, 
What should healthcare stakeholders be expecting from each candidate and how should they think about that? There's actually a surprising degree of unanimity or bipartisanship around some issues generally in terms of the priorities and also a great divide on other issues. Where there seems to be consistency of focus is around trying to deal with prescription drug pricing. President Trump has made that a priority ever since he was running in 2016. He's continued to focus on it throughout his term and undoubtedly would make that a high priority going into a second term. Democrats likewise are very focused on prescription drug pricing resolutions as well, although they have very different ideas on how to achieve that. Where the two parties seem to divide and where healthcare stakeholders really should be looking is around addressing coverage or the uninsured. The Democrats have made a priority over expanding the Affordable Care Act and addressing the coverage gap. And that is undoubtedly going to be both a policy priority as well as an imperative as we're looking at economic consequences around the coronavirus. So I totally agree that there are some sharp divides. And I I think one of the places that will play out post-election is in the regulatory landscape, actually. There are a number of pretty controversial regulations the Trump administration has put forward that I think we're sort of waiting to see what happens with the outcome of the election. And then some that are maybe not even that controversial, but just, you know, we're, we're sort of waiting on, you know, one that comes to mind, Eric, is around the stark regulatory changes and kickback regulatory changes. While there may not be a lot of partisan divide over what to do on those hyper-technical legal issues, I think we've got a lot of that wrapped up in the election too. So, Looking forward to a very busy session between the election and the end of the year and then heading into January with a a big agenda ahead of us. I think often, you know, we think about the political platforms and we know they're very much geared toward what constituents want or, or is timely for them. But what other health policies are out there maybe lurking that aren't being widely discussed? They may be perceived as less important, but are from your vantage point, perhaps equally transformational. Yeah, so I don't know if it's not being widely discussed, but maybe one that we haven't widely discussed on this podcast (laughs) is surprise billing. (laughs) So one that we haven't widely discussed is surprise billing. I think that was the, well, a focal point along with prescription drug pricing until coronavirus. It was sort of those two issues, top of mind and, you know, a lot of anxiety and nervousness and uncertainty about what was going to happen, but it seemed like something was going to happen. And we've seen the Trump administration through some of their COVID relief efforts try to, you know, sort of tackle around the edges on surprise billing. I think this issue comes back to the forefront if there's a vaccine with a high price tag. As you start to see some of the COVID-19 hospitalization stories come out around people with what they are labeling surprise bills. So that's one that I think we haven't talked about that's pretty top of mind. Jessica, what about from your perspective? So another issue that had been top of mind prior to the pandemic is transparency. So, and the administration hasn't lost focus on this. It just isn't necessarily at the top of the list of discussion items during the public health emergency. So CMS and the administration more broadly has been taking very aggressive steps to increase transparency. And this actually links nicely to their efforts around surprise billing. So one issue 
that consumers of healthcare have is that there's a lack of transparency on the cost of the care to the provider. So CMS has been taking very bold steps to increase information available to consumers. And they've primarily been targeting hospitals and increasing transparency around the cost of hospital care, presumably because it's the highest expense category of services, right? So if you end up in the hospital, chances are you're walking out of there with a relatively expensive bill. So having a sense of what that care is going to cost you has become a focal point for this particular administration and increasing the availability of that information to help consumers make choices has also been a priority. And we continue to see that even though it's not necessarily being discussed as loudly as some of these other topics are right now. Well, Jessica, in that vein, maybe we can just continue with you. As you think about taking bold steps, big changes and actions, that's happening on the government side of the house. What steps should healthcare stakeholders be taking now to prepare for 2021 and what you think might be coming around the corner? Yes. So one area we've been urging our clients to focus on is around a recent proposal in the inpatient prospective payment system, which would use data being collected under the guise of increasing transparency to fundamentally shift how hospitals are paid for those services. And so we're urging clients to pay attention to that. So part of what we're seeing through all of this transparency, again, is there seems to be a dual focus. One is the consumer and increasing information available to consumers and Medicare beneficiaries. But the other piece is using this data, leveraging it to drive payment transformation as well. I think to Jessica's point, there's a lot that is very difficult to predict in terms of what will be a priority item in 2021. So much turns on the outcome of the election, which party controls Congress. But there's also so much clarity that we do have and so much ability to predict right now. And I think healthcare stakeholders would be well advised to spend some time trying to identify the issues like we did in this podcast that are likely to be priority issues, interpret how those policy priorities would be likely to affect their business and their business objectives and then calibrate strategies accordingly so that on November 4th or whenever it is we have more clarity, businesses are able to pivot quickly based on a changing landscape and a changing environment. That's great, Eric. So just to reiterate that, really guidance is to identify issues, figure out how they impact your current strategy, and then <laughs> no shock coming out of 2020. Be, be prepared to pivot quickly, right? I think that's the story of the year. Jessica or Armara, any closing thoughts from you or key takeaways for leaders as they really work to continue to navigate what we all know are uncharted waters uh, ahead? So I would just add to what Eric had said, which is there's really an opportunity. And I think this is an area where we can be particularly valuable, which is there's an abundance of data that exists that allows us to really dig in and analyze what the impact of potential policy changes might be, whether it's on an individual stakeholder or a sector or an industry more broadly. And so I would just urge people to be aware of what resources are available. There is information to help inform a position or a policy objective 
around all of these issues. And that is something that we are certainly well positioned to help folks navigate. Mara, you want to bring us home with some closing thoughts? Sure. I'm happy to. Yeah. So I think we've had a largely, you know, sort of forecasty conversation today, but what I would bring it back to, to close out is that we totally understand that there's a mountain of regulation and guidance and other materials that healthcare providers and others in the healthcare industry are trying to follow along. And McDermott Plus is here to help you. And we have a a wide array and library of resources to cut through a lot of that noise and get you what you need. So I'd encourage you to connect with us, any of us on the podcast or otherwise in the consulting group. We're here to help. We know it's a, a global pandemic and has challenged everybody and stretched everybody's resources. So please don't hesitate to contact us if there's a way we can help you. Great. Well, that seems a fitting way to end. So Eric, Mara, Jessica, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your perspectives. Thanks to for our listeners for tuning in. For more insight and analysis about the state of healthcare after the curve, you can check out McDermott's Healthcare and Life Sciences News blog at healthcarelifesciencesnews.com. For more insights on healthcare policy issues from McDermott Plus Consulting, visit mcdermottplus.com. This material is for general information purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice or any other advice on any specific facts or circumstances. No one should act or refrain from acting based upon any information herein without seeking professional legal advice. McDermott, Will & Emery makes no warranties, representations, or claims of any kind concerning the content herein. McDermott, Will & Emery and the contributing presenters or authors expressly disclaim all liability to any person in respect of the consequences of anything done or not done in reliance upon the use of contents included herein. Copyright 2020, McDermott, Will & Emery. All rights reserved. Any use of these materials, including reproduction, modification, distribution, or republication without the prior written consent of McDermott, Will & Emery is strictly prohibited. This may be considered attorney advertising. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome.